Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is your host, Spencer Martin. This week, we are going over a few takeaways from the Giro d'Italia, really digging into the numbers and where that race was won, and talking a little, little bit about the Crotinum du Dauphiné, which is going on right now. Well, normally, that's a big preparation race for the Tour de France, but this year, we are missing major contenders like Primoz Roglic and Tadej Pogacar, so uh, it's a little bit more uh, tangential than it would normally be. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not interesting, though. It's a really crazy race, and this year is no different. It is already getting super weird, and we aren't even in the interesting stages yet. So, so we'll definitely have more to talk about with that as that race goes on. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition that comes out once a week. It's a no-brainer if you're listening to this podcast and enjoying it. There's also a paid edition. It comes out three times a week during non-grand tour weeks and daily during grand tours. And you also get discounts to select brands like Stage of Cycling and Curé of Switzerland. So if you want to sign up for that, the paid or the free one, go to beyondthepeloton.substack.com. But first on this year to tell you, it finished, I mean, almost a week ago at this point. So I'm just going to keep my thoughts brief, but I went back through uh, stage by stage where the time differences were made between Egan Bernal, Damiano Caruso, who got second place. Um, I kind of left out Simon Yates because I felt like while he got third, he was slightly irrelevant the entire race. I mean, there was that that brief period between stages 19 and 20 that we thought he might, you know, launch a uh, long range assault and overtake Egan Bernal win the win the Giro but other than that he he kind of disappointed um he finished up finished third overall which which is uh you know nothing to scoff at pretty impressive but uh, I just didn't feel like he was really ever figuring in uh the fight for the overall for the overall win so I I actually included Joao Almeida because um interestingly enough if he doesn't lose uh the four minutes that he lost in stage four or the time that he had to wait up for Remco Evenepoel, he would have won the Giro. Um, obviously, that's a big if because he got dropped in stage four. You know, it's like if you know if you never got dropped, you'd win the you'd win the race. Uh, that's not exactly how it works. But I thought that was interesting. I thought he was he was never going to win after losing that time, but he was really surging toward that surging toward the podium. And I thought he was one of the strongest riders, if not the strongest rider, in the race for the final week. Uh, really impressive stuff from him. He, I think he's still only twenty two years old. It's funny that he's talked about like he's some established star like washed up rider almost uh but i thought he got sixth at this race i thought this was more impressive than his fourth place last year uh and this field was definitely more stacked than last year so considering that i I thought this was a big improvement for him especially taking into account that he did have to sit up and wait for rimko evanapol on really key stages that i mean what sticks out in my mind is stage 11 the uh the gravel stage and stage 14 the zonkalon stage he looked really strong on both of those days um, and lost, I mean, almost close to four minutes waiting for, for Evan and Pohl. Uh, really strange decision, too, by his DQS team since it was never really realistic for Evan and Pohl to win the Giro. Um, if he's 21, he's never raced a Grand Tour before. As I said many times in this podcast, I couldn't find anyone in history who's won a Grand Tour their first time racing one, except for the people who raced the very first Grand Tours. Uh, so yeah, that, that was an odd, and he's coming off a broken pelvis. So yeah, strange choice for them to put all their eggs into that basket. Going back to Bernal and Caruso, I mean, those by the end of the race, uh, Bernal wins by 89 seconds. The, those two were the, were the, really the two relevant riders. Uh, Caruso, career journeyman, really no results. He has one win his entire pro career before this race. No world tour stage wins. So yeah, I, I don't think people, anyone took him seriously until this third week. But if we look at uh, just power numbers. He, he puts his his numbers on Strava, which is really interesting. I mean, he's putting out serious, serious power. I mean, on stage twenty, the final climb, he did four hundred and fifteen watts average for over twenty minutes, uh, which 
I mean, hopefully sounds impressive, but if you're not impressed by that, remember that's the end of 20 days of racing and that's the final climb of a stage that he had been solo for the last, not solo, but off the front for the last 50 K. So, I mean, that, that's a world-class performance by him and shows that, you know, Bernal started the climb at about 40 seconds behind him and he finishes the climb or he finishes the stage 29 seconds back. So he really only pulled back 11 seconds. Uh, which which we now we know why looking at that power number. But when we break into the I, there, there's a big breakdown on this. It's actually in the free edition. So if you go to beyondthepeloton.substack.com, um, it's the Giro kind of roundup piece. Uh, you can read it even if you're not a paying subscriber. I break this all down and there's kind of like visual aids. It's it's a little bit easier to dig into. I'm just going to give a brief over, overview here. But essentially, Bernal won the race in the first two weeks. Um, he stops taking time after stage 14. So from stages one through seven, he takes 23 seconds on Crusoe. 8 through 14, he takes a minute and 28. That is really where he won the race. Uh, big things that stick out there are the stage 11 gravel stage, uh, stage 14 Zonkalon. Uh, I think he took, that's pretty, those two stages are pretty much where he took all that time. Uh, and then stages 15 through 21, the last seven stages, Crusoe actually takes back 23 seconds on him there. So he was just in full defense, defense mode. And it, that's impressive when you consider stage 16 is included in that. And stage 16 is Bernal's arguably his best stage, or at least his best stage physically. I mean, he really destroyed everyone on that final climb, the Paso Joao, but he lost a bunch of time on the descent, and Crusoe pegged him back, I think, to 27 seconds by the end. So to, to weather Bernal's best stage and then pull back enough time in the last, I mean, stages 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21 to, you know, really to gain 23 seconds on him in the final week is super impressive um, and shows just how strong he is. I mean, I actually really don't know what to say about Damiano Crusoe. He's 33 years old. I've, I didn't I had no idea he was capable of this result, but this was a super impressive, super impressive result. I mean, if he's racing, if he was at this level, I think at last year's Euro, I think he wins that race. You know, Bernal really was better than everyone else, but Crusoe wasn't that far off. Uh, I mean, it really, those two, it, it wasn't even a competition after that. I mean, Bernal wins by 89 seconds, but then Simon Yates is at four minutes and 15 seconds back. Vlasov's at six minutes, 40 seconds. Uh, Danny Martinez, who we'll talk about in a second, very good race for him, 724. Uh, tied, tied on time with Jabal Almeida. I've actually... Don't think I've ever seen that before. Uh, kind of interesting. That must they must have figured that uh, fifth and sixth differential from counting back stage finishers. That's kind of interesting. If that was a, for the win, what would they would do? Or even for the podium? I guess they just do the same thing. That's kind of crazy to think about, though. And if we look at the stages where Bernal and Crusoe took time on each other uh, in time trials, there's two time trial stages. Uh, Crusoe took a total of 33, 30, 37 seconds on Bernal. Uphill finishes, which I classified as, uh, I kind of did, the, it's it's a little bit, I just kind of made this up, but I thought it was a decent methodology. So I, I just classified high mountain stages as stages that they either pass a point that's over 2,000 meters, or they finish on a, a final climb that finishes above 1,500 meters and is uh, 7K or longer. Uh, anything that, that is lower than that or shorter finish than that, I just classified as like a hilly stage or like an uphill finish. There was four of those. Bernal took only 33 seconds on those four stages, which is kind of interesting. Um, high mountain stages, four of them. Bernal takes 46 seconds, which isn't as much as you would think or as much as people would have guessed in the first week when they said, wait till the high mountains, there'll be minutes between people. Uh, gravel roads, one stage, like an alternative terrain stage, we'll call it. Uh, Bernal takes 20 seconds in one stage. 26 seconds, sorry. So that's the most important stage. Time bonuses. 
eight stages where he took time bonuses and he takes 21 seconds total. So that that's actually really big. If you think about that's a quarter of his winning margin is just some time bonuses. So we, and this wasn't even really a time bonus heavy race. His Ineos team didn't pull back the brake that often. They just let the brake go. They weren't even really that aggressive about getting time bonuses. And it accounts for a fourth of his overall win. So uh, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills here, but the cycling media is still obsessed with this idea of like, oh, the contenders will just pull out minutes on each other in the high mountains. But it's like, well, that hasn't happened for a long, long time. I mean, especially at the Tour de France, uh, where a lot of these races are won are time trials and time bonuses, which we see here. And the third, I mean, actually, I, I'm saying that the third, it actually might be one of the most important parts of Grand Tours in the modern era, are, uh, let's call them alternative terrain stages or crosswind stages. These these flat, I mean, I mean that, that wasn't a flat stage on stage 11, but let's just say uh, hilly to flat. Uh, in the tour, it's often crosswinds. Uh, at the Giro, it's these gravel stages they do in Tus- Tuscano, in Tuscany. Uh, they they really blow the race open. I mean, if you remember stage seven of the 2020 Tour de France, uh, Pogac- that's where Roglic got his biggest gap on Pogacar the entire race. Pogacar, really, if he doesn't lose that time, he wins that that tour running away. So uh, yeah, I, I, it's my my opinion. I think the numbers back me up here that time bonuses and flat stages where you can pull out time, like crosswinds or gravel, are comp- are really really underrated by the media and possibly also by teams. High mountain stages are very overrated. In time trials, it's it sounds crazy to say. I mean, but I feel like they're they're underrated. I, I don't know how. I mean, we have like years and years and years of evidence that time trials are really where Grand Tours are won. Uh, technically. You know, if Bernal just loses the time he loses in the time trials, sits in the sits in the peloton, goes to the high mountains, he technically wins this because he took 46 seconds in the high mountains, uh, lost 37 seconds in the time trial. Uh, a, it would have been close, and B, I do think Crusoe would have would have uh, ridden some of these high mountain stage different differently. And if we if we consider stage 16 isn't shortened. I don't think Bernal gets that time because I think that he's not able to descend the multiple passes in the rain, and Caruso and Caruso and Bardet would have uh, probably would have pegged him back if that stage was longer. So I think the shortened stage actually helped him. So kind of interesting to think about. I mean, Ineos did the right thing here. If you remember, first week, first two weeks, Ineos was super aggressive, kind of. Some people probably thought they were too aggressive and wasting too much energy, but it actually makes sense looking back. They knew that this that they weren't going to get a ton, a ton of time in the high mountains. Really, the high mountains are good for weeding out people who just aren't up to the fitness. It's like the pretenders. So uh, think Hugh Carthy, think Vlasov, think Tobias Foss. I mean, I, I feel bad. Tobias Foss had a, had a great race, but he did lose time in the high mountains here. It's really the guys who just don't quite have the ability to climb, who aren't up to the same level, will lose tons of time in the high mountains. I mean, I, I don't think anyone's disputing that. But uh, a, a rider to your equal, like Caruso to Bernal, you're not going to pull minutes out of them. And it actually makes a lot of sense because it's almost like a time trial where, well, if you're two riders and you're pretty similar physically or you have similar physical abilities, where are you going to get the difference? Because when you're on the climb, you can just ride your own pace. The drafting's not a big not a really big factor. Uh, let's assume you can descend about about the same level. There's not actually much area there, wiggle room to pull out time. So it's so odd to me that it's that it's really drilled home over and over again that like the mountains are going to blow this race up. Where it's like, well, the mountains really are just for weeding out those who aren't up to the level that they need to be. Uh, but amongst the riders who are around the same level, the mountains are almost a stalemate. 
Um, I mean, that's a little dramatic to say. I mean, not quite a stalemate. You can, a writer like Bernal and, and Ruglich, they can pull out, his, and Garrett Thomas in his prime, they could kind of like strike in the last kilometer of some of these uphill finishes, these high mountain finishes, uh, and maybe get 10, 15 seconds on competitors. I mean, I just went back through the 2019 tour results today, and there was a couple stages where you know, Thomas even got like 20 seconds with, with late, late stage attacks. That's about the best you can hope for. You certainly can't be sitting in and thinking you're going to pull minutes. I, I don't even really know. I'd have to go back and watch like the 19, I don't know, like 1990 to 2010 Tour de France to, to figure out where this myth comes from. I mean, you know, I think people just remember Lance would let people get like 20, 30 minutes on him. He would just like cruise along like soft pedal for the first week and a half, they would get to the mountains and he would really put time into people. I think that's kind of broken some, some uh, journalists who were around for that time. I think it's kind of broken their brains because that's definitely not, it, that's definitely not happening anymore. And I mean, we, we have the, the stats to prove that. Uh, if we look at time difference per stage, this is kind of interesting. It will show us like a weighted importance of each stage, each stage type, actually. Uh, gravel stages, 26 seconds per stage. Time trials, 18.5 seconds per stage. High mountain stages, 11 seconds per stage. Uphill finishes, 8 seconds per stage. Time bonuses, 2.6 seconds per stage. So uh, clear here that the gravel stage was super important if we weighed it by the number of stages. If there was more gravel stages, I bet Bernal would have taken even more time because he's so good on the gravel. The others were not as confident. Um, and when you're just on this alternative terrain, shall we call it, like a cobblestone or gravel, Really, there's no place to hide. Um, it's there's more skill involved in climbing a mountain, but you just can't draft as much, and your speed is lowered. So the speed differential between a rider who's on a really good day and a rider who's on a really bad day is higher than on like nice smooth pavement. Uh, yeah, I mean here we see high mountain stages are important. Eleven seconds per stage, you know that's key. You know that's technically probably where Bernal won the race, but. Without that, I mean, that gravel stage, for if you want bang for your buck, that's where you get it. And these time trials, this was not a time trial heavy race. The time trials didn't even really play a big role in it, in the, at least in the narrative. But Crusoe pulled out 18.5 seconds per TT. Uh, there was only 37 kilometers of time trialing in this. Imagine the tour, this upcoming Tour de France, it has 58 kilometers of time trial. So not quite twice as much, but close to that. It, it actually is kind of... Uh, yet to be seen i think that if bernal this was a great win you know you don't i don't want to take anything away from the win but i'm not convinced coming out of this euro that he's on the same level as someone like pogachar or primos roglic uh, i think that they could they could climb with him if not drop him at this euro and they would have been roasting him in the time trials so uh, to go to a race like the tour where time trials are even more important than they are at the, are at the euro i still think he i want to see a little bit more from him one rider i that I, you know, maybe I'm too high on him. I, I, I can't get over this rider, Joao Almeida. Uh, I, I said up top, if, if you take out his bad day on stage four and the time he lost waiting for Evanipol, he wins this race. I think he proved he's, he's 22, so he's the same age as, as Tadej Bogacar. He was so strong in, in these final mountain stages, really strong. It almost reminds me of a younger Tadej Pogacar, like a 20-year-old Tadej Pogacar than 20... 19 Volta España, where he kind of lost a lot of time early and he was just surging in that final week. I mean, Joao was so strong, especially in that final time trial. I mean, he destroyed the other uh, Grand Tour 
cont- or the GC contenders in that final TT. He proved to me, I, I almost think he flew under the radar at this race, that yeah, if he could be a potential foil for uh, Pogachar going forward, he's actually getting kind of made redundant by his Dakota Quicksec team, which uh, is crazy to me. I think he's probably the most talented rider on, the, on that team. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, Remco Evenepoel's probably more talented. I don't think anyone would dispute that. Uh, I think he is going to have the best career out of any rider or best GC career out of any rider on that team. Uh, but they're not a GC team. I talked to Marco Panati about it. They just probably lack the institutional knowledge and, you know, frankly, the the coaching ethos and coaching type to win Grand Tours. So it's it's for the best that Joao's going elsewhere. Uh, I don't think he would be as successful as he could be if he stayed at Dakota Quickstep. Uh, but he was so good. Uh, in what yeah not great that he lost that time but if you just isolate out that stage four he's he's almost unstoppable at the zero so uh that would be my my big takeaway there is that uh i think they he kind of got brushed over but he is really strong really strong like possibly Tade Pogacar strong so that that's my big takeaway also i mentioned tobias voss he gets ninth place he this is his Second ever Grand Tour that he started, first that he's finished. 24-year-old Norwegian. Uh, I don't know what it is about these Norwegians. They're so, so dang strong. Um, there's that whole team of them, Uno X, who really just like punches above their weight at every race they're in. Uh, Foss getting ninth is huge here. Um, he's not going to get a lot of, lot of play for it, a lot of talk about it, but that's definitely something to watch for. He's on Jumbo Visma, probably their post-Dumoulin, post-Roglic uh, GC plan. I mean, I would be pretty pretty happy if I was them. I'd almost even think about going after Almeida. I, I don't really know where he's going. You know, maybe he's going. I have a hard time believing he's going to UAE since Pogachar's there. Maybe Bora. Um, not not the best GC pedigree at that team though. So Yumbo, I, yeah. I mean, Joao would actually be a great pickup for him. But yeah, I've I've no knowledge of where he's going. Uh, disappointments. Maybe Hugh Carthy. He uh, had a great 2020. Got third at the. Volta España, he was really, really hyped up for this Giro. I was curious to see how he would do in a full Grand Tour. If you remember that Giro was only like 18 stages, it cut out a lot of the stages that Hugh would kind of struggle with, like a flat, early, difficult stage. Um, and he just, he the entire year, he's not been up to the level that he was last year. So I'm not quite sure what's going on with that, but I wasn't surprised that he struggled. I felt like the media, the British media particularly, was kept expecting him to turn it around but it never came um he never looked good really at a decent opening time trial and that was kind of it uh so it wasn't wasn't too surprised about that what is notable is dan martin gets 10th dan martin basically sat up to lose as much time as he could so he could have the chance to win a stage which he won super impressive he's 18 minutes back and he gets 10th so that shows you the the delta between bernal caruso yates and the rest. I mean, I that was that was one of my main takeaways here. Is just, we're just seeing that some of these these riders like Vlasov, uh, Bardet, Carthy, Dan Martin, they're just not at the same level as as the tippy top guys. Uh, one other note: Danny Martinez. I cannot say enough nice things about this guy. I couldn't believe the amount of work he was putting in. He really kind of won the race for Bernal in the final four days. Bernal looked to be struggling a little bit, which. You know, it would totally make sense. He spent a lot of energy taking time early in the race. So, you know, to me, that's a calculated risk and that's a risk you take because 
you'd always rather be defending a lead than attempting to overcome something. It's hard, it's harder to overcome deficits in the final week of a grand tour than the media makes it out to be. I mean, realistically, you game out that 20th stage. That's about as well as it could have worked out for Caruso. I mean, people were saying like Simon Yates is going to attack on the first climb and he's going to pull back five minutes. Like, no, that's not really how cycling works. Uh, not really how it's worked post Floyd Landis, the 2006 tour, who was then caught for uh, steroid abuse like four days later. So uh, that was never really realistic. You know, you don't want to be in that position. That's a bad position to be in. So uh, yeah, I, I love their their tactic of just being aggressive early, taking time and then defending. And they have Martinez, so they could defend. He just really sat on the front, uh, kept the gaps close, kept riders pegged, uh, pegged at good gaps. And the pace was so high that you know, if anyone was struggling, they they couldn't even hold on, let alone attack. So, and he gets fifth overall. I mean, this this is really impressive because uh, he's working so hard on the climbs and then really sitting up. Like uh, stage twenty, he just sits up with like a, a kilometer and a half to go, and he's still getting fifth. You got to imagine like how hard is Roman Bardet working? How hard is Hugh Carthy working to to get up there? And they they can't beat a guy who is like physically resting in the last two or three kilometers of a climb um, and losing time just willingly because it's not his job to stay up there. Uh, what really stuck out to me was, I mean, his climbing was super impressive. Uh, I, I would say probably one of the strongest climbers in the world, but his time trialing was, was dang good. Uh, the final TT, uh, Philippe Gana destroys it, obviously, because he's amazing. Joao Almeida has a great, great ride, 20 seconds, seven seconds behind Ghana. But then what was really interesting to me is uh, Danny Martinez, a minute and 21 seconds back in Ghana. Sounds like a lot, but that's, that's, that's really good. The only other GC riders to beat him are, are Almeida, who's a TT specialist, Foss, who's a TT specialist. And then if you look at Vlasov, who's a good time trialist, he's five seconds back. Uh, you look at Bernal, he's over a half a minute behind Martinez. Um, Caruso, really good time trialist. He's behind Martinez by a few seconds. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting to think like, where does Ineos go from here? Um, Bernal, I think is the best rider. He's, he's the best Grand Tour rider on their team. Um, I'm pretty confident in saying that. I think they did the right decision. I made, they made the right decision by getting him the win here for a rider like Bernal, even though he's very good and very talented, it's, it's going to be hard for him to win throughout his career. Because if you don't, if you're not a knockdown time trialist, you just, everything has to go right. And it's a lot harder for you to, to win than someone like uh, Bradley Wiggins, who can just sit and wait for time trials. Uh, so I think they did the right thing. I mean, this is a big win. Anytime you win a grand tour as any rider, it's a big deal, especially a non-time trial specific rider. And coming off that, that rough, rough 2020, uh, this is great. This is a gets Bernal back on track. But going forward, I do wonder how they solve this problem of these riders like Joao, Tadej Pogacar, I mean, Primoz doesn't seem to be getting any weaker, uh, but at some point he's got to decline. He is getting older. But, you know, in his current state, he's probably not beatable for Bernal. I don't quite know how they solve this problem. And Danny Martinez is an interesting solution to this or a potential solution where he can time trial incredibly well and he's really strong in the mountains. So I, I wonder, it sounds crazy because they have so many big names that are GC riders, but if we like dig into it, the quality isn't quite there, that he could be like a future GC star for them. I mean, it's crazy to think that he was 
on EF. And uh, I've heard, I think, I think Vodders has publicly come out and said this. So I think I can say it. They just didn't have the money to pay him. He was on like a cheap contract and they couldn't pay his salary for 2021. So they had to let him leave a year early. And then Ineos scooped in and picked him up. Like what a pickup that is. Uh, and that's, well, I think this kind of segues into the next topic pretty well. The Criterium du Dauphiné, where Ineos, I thought, would dominate. Um, Ineos kind of uses this race to, to gear up for the tour. They use it as like a dry run. Um, they try to get as many of their tour contenders there. So everyone's comfortable racing with each other, and it's a it's a lot of the same mountain a lot of the same mountain passes, and even routes is a lot of the mountain stages of the tour. So it's pretty useful to do if you're going to do the Tour de France. But the Ineos squad, it's so top heavy. Um, it, this is a good time to talk about it. So if you, uh, they're seen as like a a dominant team with a lot of good stage racers, which they are, I don't think you could dispute that. No, people see names like okay, Richie Port. Very, very accomplished rider. Got third at the 2020 Tour de France. Garrett Thomas won the 20, 2018 Tour de France. Egan Bernal won the 2019 Tour de France. Adam Yates, uh, people think he's good. He's raced well at times. Uh, not a hugely decorated Grand Tour racer, but he's perceived to be a star. Uh, and Richard Carapaz won the 2019 Giro d'Italia. Uh, Theo Gegenhardt won the 2020 Giro d'Italia. Even Sosa, people perceive him to be very good, even though I don't think... Uh, there, there's actually the results there to back it up. Uh, Rowan Dennis, uh, world time trial champion, great climber, could probably be a GC rider if he really wanted to. Uh, so you start looking at this and you're like, well, this is Danny Martinez. I think he could be a future Grand Tour star. You're like, wow, this is a stacked team. But if you start thinking like, well, could any of these riders win the Tour de France? Just start playing that game. Um, they start getting struck off really quick. Richie Port is 36 years old. He's not going to win the Tour. Uh, he said as much that last year was probably his best run at it, and he got third. That's very good. Uh, he's not going to win. Garrett Thomas is 35 years old. Uh, he would be the oldest winner of the tour in 100 years if he won, so probably not going to happen. And he's not really... He won today at the Dauphiné. Super impressive stage win, but he has not won um, a Grand Tour since 2019, so it's probably not going to happen. Ian uh, Murnau, he could win. Obviously, he's won the tour. He's not going to race it this year, though. Richard Carapaz, very good rider, uh, cannot time trial though, which disqualifies him, in my opinion, from this year's Tour de France at least. So we're starting to get pretty thin here. Um, you could go panic mode. Rowan Dennis actually fits this. If you were just picking the team from a spreadsheet, you would go with Rowan Dennis because uh, the Tour is so, I mean, it's relatively so easy this year and so time trial heavy. A rider like him could win. Um, Adam Yates, I frankly, I think he's been their strongest stage racer this year besides Egan Bernal. So I don't think he can win the tour, but I think he's their best bet. So you start, you start to see the problem here. So they, they sent at this race, they have Theo Gegenhardt, Richie Port, and Garrett Thomas. Um, Theo Gegenhardt, I, so at some point earlier this year, it was like January, February. I don't know why they did this statement. They came out and said that the leaders for the tour are going to be Garrett Thomas, Teo Gigginhart, and Richard Carapaz. This is crazy. I have no idea why they did this. They also did a long list that didn't include Adam Yates, who's probably been their best rider besides Egan Bernal this year. So uh, they, they've painted themselves into a huge corner here because uh, we're seeing at the Dauphiné so far that Teo Gegenhardt is not a leader. Um, he is riding in full domestique mode. I, I don't 
know if he expects to be a leader. It, it does not look like it. It looked like he kind of slow pedaled the time trial, which would tell you he's saving up for the rest of the race to help Garrett Thomas. Uh, Richie Port has like put himself out of the leadership conversation for the tour. I, I'm not buying that for a second. He looks like he's one of the team's best riders at 36 years old, which is uh, impressive for him. Not so impressive for the team though. Uh, and Garrett Thomas, I mean, he's, he looks okay. Uh, he looks actually better this year than I thought he would look. He won the Tour of Romandy, uh, not not the strongest field, and I would say a weak field, actually, if you look at who else was in that race. He gets, he beats his teammate, Richie Port, and then Fausto Masnada's third is not a, a level, a tier one Grand Tour rider. Mark Solaire, Mike Woods, Ben O'Connor finished behind him. That's not the strongest field. So. Um, He's definitely done. He's not done anything to assuage my worries that they're going to the tour without a real leader. Uh, so th- this this Dauphiné rolls up. Uh, first few stages are they're 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 hard. There's no easy stages at the Dauphiné. That's kind of it's kind of a fun race because it's it's kind of in the Alps region. Not every day is a mountain stage, but every day has some climbs. So Sonny Cabrelli is a sprinter for Bahrain Bahrain victorious this year. And he's made it to the finish every stage so far. So it can't be that hard if Sonny Cabrelli is making it, but he is, he's actually been a lot more impressive than I knew he could be because, you know, some serious riders are getting dropped. Like Brandon McNulty got dropped on stage one, I think, and lost, lost a ton of time. Same thing with Jonas Vindegaard lost a ton of time too. So these aren't easy stages by any means, but stage four is the uh, time trial. It's not that long. It's 16.4K. It has some, it's, it's pretty tough. In the second half, there's some not steep, but kind of long dragging uphills. But these guys do it pretty quick, like 21 minutes. Uh, the results are really surprising. So Alexi Lusinko crushes it, um, finishes eight seconds in front of Jan Izagire, both on Astana. Neither of these guys are, are good time trialers. So this is a super surprising result. Casper Askren, if you remember when Tour of Flanders gets third, didn't even know he's a time trialist. Wilco Ketterman in fourth, Richie Port in sixth. He's 15 seconds back. And then Garrett Thomas is 10th, 23 seconds back. So these are bad results. Lucas Postelberger, who's the race leader currently, gets ninth, preserves his race lead. To me, this was a little bit of a disaster for Ineos because we know, I mean, they've said they like to treat this like it's their tour. You know, they 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 don't hold back at the Dauphiné. Uh, Garen Thomas said it was a pacing issue. That actually doesn't make any sense to me because the way Ineos does time trials is it doesn't matter if there's a mountain in the second half of the race. They just, you know, they pre-ride the course. They guess how much time it's going to take for them to do, let's say 20 minutes. And then they just say, okay, average the same power. You, you want to do 450 watts for this TT. So it doesn't matter what the terrain is. Just keep it at 450 watts. Uh, you might deviate some if you're on a downhill. Maybe you're not pushing 400. If you're on a steep climb, maybe you're doing more. But the, the terrain really doesn't matter to their pacing strategy. So uh, right there, my BS meter was going up. That didn't add up at all because why would the fact that there's more climbs in the course than you thought affect your pacing? Um, unless they thought they'd do this in like 15 minutes and it took them 22 minutes. I don't know. Um, I just think there's... There's definitely some issues going on there with their time trial. And I don't know if it's form or setup or what or fueling. Something happened. Um, Teo Gegenhart gets absolutely crushed. I'm not even sure he was riding this full full speed. He might be saving himself for this weekend because it's tough mountain stages. But what this leaves us with, it's kind of an interesting thing. So let's flash forward. Today's stage five. 
maybe no, t- yesterday's stage five, I'm recording it today. Uh, Garrett Thomas, it's like a sprint stage, hard sprint stage. Garrett Thomas jumps away in the final kilometer. Uh, really, really good, really good move, really smart move. Knows that a U turn is coming up, uses it to his advantage, gets a gap, holds off Cabrelli uh, at the end. Th- really thrilling finish. Looked like Cabrelli passed him. <laughs> Thomas like kind of sat up. I don't really know what he was thinking, but he, he ends up winning the stage. But the GC after this, uh, he gets a 10-second time bonus, which actually is key because it, it jumps him up above port. So now he's the highest-placed Ineos rider at 14 seconds back, so he can take precedent over port in the mountains. Um, so kind of a big time bonus there. Alexei Lusenko, another just wild-card strong rider. I mean, uh, he's won the Tour of Oman, which actually has – he's won it twice. And it has some hard climbs. You know, it has the Green Mountain, which is a tough, tough climb. So – we know he can, and he's won a mountain stage. He won a mountain stage at the 2020 Tour de France. Um, he got third, the 2019 Tour in a mountain stage. So we also know he's good. Casper uh, Askren, he's, he's very strong. He will not make it to these high mountains. Juan, Jan Izaguirre, very good climber. His biggest problem is time trials, but he got second in the time trial, and he's now leading Garrett Thomas and Richie Port. So uh, also kind of a wild card. I wouldn't feel comfortable being behind him. Wilco Kelderman. Uh, pretty good rider. I mean, I wouldn't put it past him to win this race. He could win this race. Uh, Garrett Thomas in sixth, and then Richie Port is now two seconds behind his teammate. This is super interesting. And then you have like Miguel Engel Lopez, who terrible time trust, one of the worst, very bad. He's 43 seconds behind Lucas Postelberger. But if you guys, but if you think about it, the Dauphiné has a tendency, especially since 2014, to throw up crazy, crazy final weekends where. You can have a rider. If you remember, Danny Martinez kind of came out of nowhere to win last year's edition on the final stage. So I wouldn't count Lopez out either. I mean, I mean, Nairo Quintana's a minute. What is not? What is going on with Nairo? He's a minute and fifteen seconds back. Um, I think he had knee surgery this offseason. That might be what's going on there. Sepp Kuss is a minute and eighteen seconds back. He's been terrible this year, but you know he's a very good climber. Guillaume Martin, same thing. He's not been great this year. Also a very good climber. I don't think you can count any of these guys out. So uh, we have a really, really interesting final final weekend coming up. But I think the main takeaway here is that Enios has, I think they have a problem brewing on their hands for the Tour de France. I think if they were going to do this season over again, they would be taking Iga Bernal to the Tour. He's their best rider on their team. And they would be taking Adam Yates with him. Uh, Garrett Thomas, the team is very loyal to him. They support him publicly. They know that he's not, a Tour de France winning rider anymore. And I think the final few stages of the Dauphiné are going to prove this. Um, I, don't th- I don't think he's going to win this race, and I don't think he's going to stand a chance at the, at the Tour. But they've kind of painted themselves into a corner where he's going to be their leader. Um, maybe they, they bring Adam Yates as like a plan B, but Adam Yates, if, if Adam Yates, you're a $50 million a year team, and you're, you're hanging your hat on Adam Yates, who's looked very good this year, but... His best career Grand Tour finishes is fourth at the 2016 Tour de France, and he's never done better than that. He, got, he had a pretty good tour last year, and he got ninth. So it's not a great situation for them, and I don't totally know what the answer is. I mean, if you can fast-track Danny Martinez, I mean, it might just be bring Danny Martinez, see what he can do. <laughs> I don't know. It's like you just want to start with talent and work from there, where I don't think Garrett Thomas and, and riders have gotten faster, I, and we're not here to like figure out why, who, who knows why. It could be a number of reasons, but um, I don't think the, the speeds Garrett Thomas was climbing at the 2019 Tour de France wouldn't cut it anymore. So 
The team has some problems, and I think they're going to get exposed in the final few stages here. I'm going to put in uh, just a little bit about uh, on Friday, I guess today, the day you're listening, or the day this comes out, there is a kind of a mini mountain finish before we get into the tough weekend. So I will drop in a bit about what happens there. I bet Garrett Thomas wins, and I look like an idiot. So I'll put that in right now. Stage six just wrapped up. Alejandro Valverde turned back the clock, looked every bit as fit as he did in his prime, uh, just reeling and mowing down Teo Gegenhart in the final few meters of the kind of a mild uphill or summit finish. A couple interesting takeaways here. Uh, Teo uh, looked to be, to me, with like 300 meters to go, like he was leading out, like he launched an attack to lead out Garrett Thomas. Garrett Thomas couldn't go with him. Uh, Teo then just says, well, screw it. I'll try to win the stage myself. Now, put in a really good performance, really impressive, but Valverde just, wow. Every time I think that kind of the, the clock has turned too far, he's 41 years old, just like, can he possibly keep doing this? He proves me wrong. I mean, he looked really, really impressive in that final, I don't know, 100 meters. It, he was traveling, looked like twice as fast as Teo Gegenhart, who's in the prime of his life at like 26, 27 years old. So chapeau. I don't know what else to say about Valverde. Uh, some people have said Chris Horner's Velta win uh, at 41 is more impressive than what Valverde is doing right now. I completely disagree. I think uh, his performance at Liège and getting wins like this, and then I have to imagine he's going to win a Tour de France stage as well, is just, it's the most impressive thing I've ever seen from a rider of this age. A couple other GC notes. Alexi Lucinko takes the overall lead after Bora's Lucas Postelberger was dropped in the final climb. Not too surprising, Postelberger is not a great climber. I, people are kind of just penciling in Lucinko to lose this jersey over the weekend. I don't know if it's that simple. I mean, the guy is so strong. He is so strong. He's pretty big at 70, 74 kilos, but he's won mountain stages, you know, at the Tour de France. You know, he got third at a very hard mountain stage, the 2019 Tour de France. So I, I don't know. I think it, if Ineos goes into this weekend just kind of riding defensively, if if the other GC contenders don't take him seriously, he could win. If it's a mild final two days, I think he could shock the favorites and win this race. Wilco Kelderman on Bora also looks good. He's sitting third overall at 12 seconds back. Uh, he looks really good. Uh, kind of an odd thing in the finish, though. His teammate Patrick Conrad took third place. He takes fourth, so his teammate stole the time bonus from him. I have no idea what was going on there, why that happened. That's a huge mistake. I mean, the four seconds could come into play later. These week-long stage races, every second really counts on them. Garrett Thomas, uh, it looked to me like he was maybe paying for that effort yesterday in the final kilometer. Uh, you could argue that that wasn't worth it, that if you're going for GC, you shouldn't be pursuit powering a final K, that that's a waste of energy, but he got 10 seconds, so so that's certainly not nothing. Um probably worth the energy expenditure, especially since uh, he doesn't lose time today. You could also argue, though, that if he just chills out yesterday, maybe he wins the stage today and gets those 10 seconds back and has to put out less energy than he did in the final kilometer yesterday, which he was certainly putting out a lot more power than the GC contenders behind. So kind of an interesting to think about there. Just for the weekend ahead, we have, this was the first, like, I don't know, really hard, I'd say hard summit finish. We've had kind of like in, in between stages up until this point. But tomorrow, stage seven is is really tough. It has a thir- it has two HC climbs, always category, the, the hardest categorized climbs, I guess. I don't know if the Giro does this. The, the race is owned by the Tour de France. I'll do this. But 
Uh, I think the Giro just stops at first category climbs, but the uh, the first climb of the day is 13k long at 7.7%, which is really hard, and the final climb is 17k long at 7.4%. So that is that's really tough. But that's a type of gradient. The Alps in general are good for a rider like Lucinko. Um, I could see him surviving that. And then the final day on stage eight. It's trickier because there are, I'm just counting them, one, two, three, four, five, six categorized climbs. This is the day where stuff uh, in the past five or six years has really gotten crazy. Uh, there's the Col de, de la Jouplan is the final climb on the day. It is really hard. It's 11K, It's basically 12K at 8.5%. That's really tough. If you remember Lance Armstrong cracked here in the 2000 Tour de France, I believe. He uh, bonked big time. Jan Ulrich took big time on him. Uh, Lance says this was uh, probably the hardest climb of his career. So if he's saying that, we know it's really tough. There's also the Col de la Colombière. It's 12K long at 6% in the middle of the stage. And then before that, there's a 12K long 5% climb. So stuff could really get crazy. Uh, it's kind of everyone thinks that the, the mountain stages of the tour are it's like it's going to blow up there, but it actually tends to happen at the Dauphiné. Um, it's almost like a fantasy cycling for people who want exciting racing. So you could really see stuff get crazy on Sunday. I think if, if, you're, if you're not a Lucinko supporter, if you don't think he can win this race, Sunday would be the day that I would pencil in for him kind of struggling. I also don't, but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't just say, well, then Garrett Ineos is going to win because Garrett Thomas, I mean, Richie Port has lost the, lost the Dauphiné on this stage before. Um, he, Richie Port is not good at this, these type of stages. Garrett Thomas also not not that great at them, so I think this this really uh, favors people like Yon Izagire, uh, not really Wilco Kelderman, but you could see someone like Mija Ango Lopez coming out of nowhere. You know, if he is at all fit, this that could be a stage for him. David David Godu, David Godu possibly too. He's a great climber who's kind of an agent of chaos who could he could do well. Sepp Kuss, a minute 17 back. He tried an attack today. He didn't look terrible. It's it's probably the fittest I've seen him look all year. I still don't think he's at the level that he could uh, do what he did last year at the Dauphiné and just blow the race up on the final day. If you remember, he was in that lead group on the final day, which was maybe the hardest day of racing in cycling history. That was insane. Uh, but that's possibly a good thing. Um, Sepp was so good so early last year. Um, he's been off off his best um, I think without a doubt this year, but you know maybe he's going into the tour a little bit more uh, with a little bit better preparation than he did last year, where maybe he was too fit too early. And then if you remember, he did get dropped in a few of the mountain stages last year at the tour. So uh, this could be kind of a. He, I don't think he's going to be blowing the race up on Sunday, but that could possibly be for the best. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and I'll get a get an episode out early next week so we can talk about uh what i'm sure is to be the crazy final two a crazy final two stages of this dauphine libre thanks for listening bye